To another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Leeds. My name is Dan Schreiber, and please welcome to the stage. It's Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andy Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that Tchaikovsky used to hold his head when conducting because he was afraid it would fall off. <laughs> so this is apparently, he, was, he used to get so nervous when he was going on stage and there was so much going on in his head that he genuinely thought, no, this is definitely going to fly off halfway through the game. <laughs> so he would sit there, or stand there rather, and have his hand just resting. Yeah, I thought that it wasn't true and I um, went on the internet and a few people said that they thought it wasn't true but then I found one of his best friends actually said that he did do this. So, Although, lest you trust Dan too far, when you first told this to me last week and he told me where you'd read it, it was in a book of fiction, wasn't it? <laughs> It was in a movie called Still Crazy, which stars Bill Nighy and Billy Conley. And he said that. But yeah, so, uh, so it turns out a lot of people do say that it might not be true. And they only say it because Tchaikovsky is one of those guys where people love to build myths around him for some reason and create stories about him. And that, yeah. that was one possibly. But as James says, we found a source. Well, he was a massive star, wasn't he? He was one of those classical musicians in the 19th century that was the equivalent of what, what's a famous band? One Justin, Direction? Was he the, the Justin Bieber of his day? The Justin Bieber of his day, yeah. Yeah, when he went to America to do a, perform- a few performances in New York, people used to cut out his- pictures of his face in newspapers and send them to him and say, please sign this. Um, and Which is really creepy, but whatever. Go for a guy who thinks his head's going to fall off as well. To get <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was harsh. It was harsh. He was a troubled person, but I think the clues were there. So when he was first going to America, he was writing this diary of uh, questions he had to ask when he got there to make sure that, you know, he didn't screw up or die. And uh, there were three questions, and it was, is it safe to drink the water? Fair question. Where can I do my laundry? Fair question. What sort of hats do people wear? (laughs) Oh, wow. But that, that's interesting because uh, his death is to do with a glass of water, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Supposedly, yeah. yeah. He supposedly died of cholera, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what they think, although maybe he committed suicide. Yeah, they're not sure. Or yeah. it might be that um, he, so I think, because he was really paranoid about um, drink, about clean water as evidenced by his to-do list when he got to America, really paranoid about cleanness of water his whole life, and then he suddenly drank a glass of tap water in the middle of a cholera outbreak, so people think maybe he did that on purpose. There was one other time when he supposedly tried to commit suicide by walking into the Moscow River yeah. uh, and trying to catch pneumonia that way. Yeah, it's wow. unusual, isn't it? Evelyn War uh, tried to kill himself by swimming out to sea, but then he got stung by a jellyfish. <laughs> really? He, he didn't like that one bit. <laughs> so he, I think he thought dying's probably even worse than this. <laughs> so he swam back. That was before he wrote anything as well. We wouldn't have any Evelyn War. <laughs> I started reading something about Tchaikovsky, which is that he always had this um, kind of slightly uneasy relationship with the sound of the violin because, as a okay. child, he had had this nightmare that he was being rubbed against a block of, you know, rosin, the stuff that they... Oh, really? What do you do? Yeah, 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 and then I realised this was a humour piece from The New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> this was not true. Uh, All the other stuff about Tchaikovsky is so yeah. crazy that you would think... Yeah. It does kind of sound like it could be true, doesn't it? it? Yeah. He once went to Berlin Zoo and saw a boa constructor being fed a Wait, large rat. A boa, a boa constructor? constructor. 
those boas don't make themselves. <laughs> a boa constrictor, um, yes. A boa constrictor being fed a large rat, and he screamed, ran away, started shaking all over, and he had to be in bed for a week. Because, wow. Yeah. Pathetic. <laughs> so um, this thing about his head falling off is kind of an example of what they call glass delusion, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a really popular delusion for about 300 years. <laughs> uh, glass had become like this massive material that everyone was using. And it was just the, it was almost a standard mental issue of the day that people had, that they thought they were made of glass and they were going to shatter if they fell over or whatever. And then it got replaced by cement delusion <laughs> a bit later. Really? <laughs> yeah, it did. Cement delusion was a real thing. But when was cement invented? Well, the Romans made cement. Uh, they did they made a kind of cement that we don't really know exactly what it was anymore but the the real kind of proper like time that cement was really popular was the 19th century and that's when cement delusion came in Uh, and actually it always seems to be that people get deluded by whatever is the main kind of technology of the day so people think that the internet's out to get them or or whatever and there's one last year was the first ever known case of climate change delusion and it was where a guy wouldn't drink any water because he felt guilty about taking it from the earth Wow. Yeah. Well, maybe if we all had that attitude, we wouldn't be in the pickle we're in. Um, King Charles VI of France. Charles the Mad, wasn't he? Well, he was known either as Charles the Mad or Charles the Well Beloved, <laughs> uh, which suggests the PR people found out about the first nickname. <laughs> Um, but he thought he thought he was made of glass, and uh, he would keep pieces of iron in his pockets because he thought that would uh, protect him if anything bumped into him, or if he accidentally bumped into a doorway when he was going through it. So he would be uh, defended against it. Yeah. Oh. So I think it was real. Um, there is a thing where your limbs um, can randomly fall off, though. Um, and what? What? <laughs> What? It's auto-amputation, which is when a limb decides to amputate itself. And uh, the most... When a limb decides to amputate (laughs) itself. That's a very very Dan sentence, and it sounds weird coming from Anna. (laughs) (laughs) The most common form makes it sound less dramatic. The most common form is dactylosis spontanea, which is when your toes spontaneously fall off. And they don't know why this happens, but um, it's like a ring of tough tissue forms around the base of your little toe. And weirdly, when it happens, it usually happens on both little toes at once. And it starts squeezing and squeezing your little toe... Um, um, and eventually your little toe falls off and they don't know the cause of it. And so eventually it's hanging by something called a pedicle uh, and then it sort of just drops off. And we don't know why it happens. It's more common in the tropics, but that's the only clue we have. Oh, my God. Wow. So does anyone else have that thing where you read about a disease and then you automatically get it? <laughs> <laughs> I am so sure my little toes are going to fall off now. Um, I found out a thing about sort of uh, worry and fear. So the Pintupi people of Australia who uh, are an, an Aboriginal people in Australia, supposedly they have 15 different words for fear. And this okay. crops up a lot. And they're, they're all specific kinds of fear. So I'm going to pronounce this, don't write in, but... Niniwararingu. <laughs> <laughs> Even I'm writing in. Yeah. <laughs> you try saying it. Niniwararingu, I think, uh, is a sudden fear that leads one to stand up to see what caused it. <laughs> what? <laughs> like that. That's cool. Yeah, that's yeah, really that's cool. Great. Yeah. Is that? Oh, Is that what, it? I thought you were going to read the other kind of forty-five. No, that's, or the, that's the only one I've found concrete <laughs> proof of. That's the only one you can pronounce. pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> um, we should move on to our next fact soon. Anyone got anything before we do? Um, I've one last thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Which is, um, it's not really related. It's about classical music, but I found it through looking for things about Tchaikovsky. Um, which is that shockwaves from the front of trombones move faster than the speed of sound. Whoa! Really? Yeah. I, I'm going to be the one to say it. Bullshit. No. <laughs> 
Well, I refer you to bbc.co.uk. <laughs> Um, they've measured the. They've measured the, it. Sort of builds up in the tube of the trombone, and it, it leaves the front of the trombone at about one percent faster than the speed of sound. These pressure waves, and so if you're sitting in front of the trombones, if you're in an orchestra, it can be a nightmare. And sometimes people have uh, protective screens. I don't screens. think anyone's that close to a trombone. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a worry at a gig. If you're in an orchestra. Oh, sorry, the person with sitting in front of the trombone. I thought you meant the audience. It's like, oh, these are great seats. <laughs> 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 Wait, so people wear, in the orchestra wear protective clothes to stop themselves getting battered by no, the shockwaves? Yeah. Some musicians who are sitting directly in front of the trombonists <laughs> have protective screens between them and the trombonists. That feels so passive-aggressive, that motion. <laughs> if I were the trombonist and I sat down, I realised someone's put a big screen up in front of me. <laughs> All right, let's move on. OK, it is time for fact number two, and that is James Harkin. OK, my fact this week is that asthmatic otters can be taught to use inhalers. <laughs> so there is, um, there is an asthmatic otter in Seattle Aquarium. He, um, he seemed to have contracted asthma after the wildfires got near to him when they had bad fires in Washington State. He was called Mishka, um, this, this um, otter, and they used food to train Mishka to kind of go up to this little inhaler thing and he would press it with his nose and then get a little bit of um, asthma medicine. Ah. Yeah, it is the most adorable fact of all time. It really is. That's so. I quite like the whole thing of offering food to get them to heal themselves through a bit of medication. There is another otter that I read about called Eddie, Eddie the otter, (laughs) and Eddie had problems with his. He basically was developing arthritis in his elbows, and so they needed to get him to sort of exercise all the joints constantly. And so what they did was they set up a basketball ring, and they had they they rewarded him in fish every time he got a shot in. So they'd give him a basketball, and I swear to God, this is what this says, Eddie was slam dunking <laughs> into the ring. I, he was loving it. And he's, he's now got a contract, hasn't he, with the NBA? He does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of otters that could be six foot tall... Oh, yeah. Oh, there are giant otters in yeah. Brazil, in the Amazon. There are otters that are up to six <laughs> feet long, and they're called giant otters. Yeah. So there are only 5,000 left. And in captivity, they have killed people, people who fall into their cages. They'll Whoa, get you. killed by an otter. Yeah, but a huge Whoa. otter. They're yeah. really powerful looking things. They're, they're also really, they can be really vicious though. Or they were, so they can well, attack. Outside of killing people, <laughs> they can also. <laughs> that is the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> no, the otter family, the, well, they're part of the weasel family. And I was watching a David Attenborough clip the other day and there was a weasel that was about three inches long and it killed, now it doesn't sound that impressive, it was a rabbit. But it was 10 times its size. It was the biggest rabbit I've ever seen, 10 times the size of it. And they wrap themselves around the necks of their prey and then they just squeeze them and then they bite them in the back of the neck and they're done and they can take prey 10 times the size of them wow yeah wow. so they're not so cute um so i read a book called otter by daniel allen and if you want otter facts it is such a good book um so otters used to be sacred to the zoroastrian people who lived in persia so modern day iran there were 18 possible penalties for killing uh, an otter in ancient persia with the zoroastrians which included you would have to then go and kill 10,000 frogs <laughs> 10,000 snakes 10,000 worms 10,000 corpse flies, whatever they are. And whoever did it, he would also have to carry 10,000 loads of cleansed wood to a sacred fire. And he would lose all his wealth, his property, his land, and he would have to give up his daughter to godly men. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Uh, In Japanese folklore, otters um, can shapeshift. 
And so the story is that they kind of live in moats around castles and they could turn into a beautiful woman, invite a man over and then eat and kill him. Uh, okay, yeah. I thought you were going to say people are waking up being caught next to an honour. Oh, I swear to God, she was a beautiful woman last night. Um, and also they can shapeshift and fool people into engaging in sumo against a rock or a tree stump. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, when St Cuthbert, uh, he was a 7th century saint, and when he, he walked in to the sea one night to pray and when he walked out two otters approached him and warmed his feet ceremonially <laughs> by rubbing themselves on him and breathing on his feet hot air they were probably just trying to dry off i imagine oh. and his feet happened to be there i'm sure he's interpreted it as an affectionate move but when they come out of the water they have to rub themselves on a lot of stuff and really? this must be the most annoying thing uh, coastal otters who live in the sea every time they are in the sea and then they come out of the sea, they have to then go and have a shower in fresh water somewhere because if they keep the salt on their fur for any amount of time, then it ruins the waterproofing of their fur. So they live in the sea, but every time they get out of the sea, they have to find some fresh water immediately and wash the salt out. How annoying is that? Yeah. Do you guys know the surface area of an otter? (laughs) I mean... Uh, Roughly, yeah. So what would you say? Uh, About one square metre. Uh, no, no, no including the hairs. Yeah. yeah. Wait, do the surface area. Well, yeah, yeah if you take so if you total the surface hairs, area, including the hairs. Yeah. And I know that they have 70,000 hairs per centimetre squared, so a quick bit of calculation. <laughs> Let's say they're about um, 10 tennis courts. <laughs> <laughs> a million car parks. What is the size of Wales? About the size of a hockey rink. That doesn't have... <laughs> That's crazy. I want to say like the size of a, a shoe or something. I don't know. But yeah. So they, they, they've got they've got more hairs on them than any animal in the animal kingdom. So oh, if you okay. had to go total surface area, the size of a hockey rink, which is which That's is pretty mental. amazing. Yeah. I, I read that they so the sea otters have the densest because they spend their whole lives basically in the sea. They mate and they eat and they sleep and they feed. They spend almost all their time floating on their backs, and they have up to one hundred sixty-five thousand hairs per square centimeter. That's the densest you get. But I think that's more than a human has hairs on their head. One thing that's interesting about sea otters is they use tools. So they can get stones and they can crack open shells to get the food inside. But there are people whose job it is to be an otter archaeologist and they want to go and find the tools that the otters use so they can see kind of how they've evolved. So a normal archaeologist would go and find old human tools, but there are people looking for old um, otter tools. tools. That's cool, isn't That's it? Really That's cool. really cool. But the problem is that a stone, like, that, well, after they've broken <laughs> the thing, they just kind of drop it to the bottom of the ocean, and it just looks like a stone then. Yeah, it's not like <laughs> now they have spanners and seed drills and stuff, and we need to look at where they started. So we're not going, wow. We all have to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Right. So how does a single archaeologist able to So what they do and... now is, because they can't really work out which stones are used by otters and which aren't, they get <laughs> Like, they, 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 just, they just get some stones yeah. and say, probably these. Yeah. <laughs> no, what they do is they get like old ancient otter skeletons and they look at the teeth and they see whether they've used, um, like the, if they had to use their teeth to open the shells, then they'll be cracked. And if they didn't have to use their teeth, then they won't be cracked. And so you can tell when they started using tools. Wow. That's amazing. They also have, they smell in 
we think they smell in quite an incredible way because they can't technically smell underwater. The water stops the um, smell particles from being able to get to their nose. So what is thought that they do, what we've seen them doing, is um, they blow a snot bubble out of their nose while they're underwater and then they blow it out towards some what they think is some prey and then they immediately suck it back in again. So they get the scent of the prey into the air in the snot bubble and they suck it back in and they can smell it. No way. So that's incredible. That's, uh, that's apparently what they're doing and that's how they smell if it's prey they want to eat or if it's just a bit of rock. That's so cool. Um, we should move on to our next fact very soon. Anyone got anything before we do? Um, some stuff about asthma very quickly. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so Thomas Penny, who is an English entomologist, thought that if you took crushed wood lice, that would cure asthma. Yeah. Um, something that actually can cure asthma is roller coasters. Or he can't cure it, but he can <laughs> relieve the symptoms. Mm. <laughs> it can make you forget about it for three minutes. <laughs> yeah, this is, um, it's an Ig Nobel um, study, actually. And they um, check people's kind of breeding ability, breathing, not breeding. Not very... on a roller coaster, James. <laughs> <laughs> the bars well, are down. Three minutes, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it, they check their breathing ability um, before and after, and just before they, because of the stress of going on the roller coaster, it got a bit worse. But then afterwards, somehow the pleasurable stress seems to have kind of relieved the symptoms of um, asthma quite a lot. Really, which is quite good. Good yeah, tip. Yeah. Um, just on difficulty breathing, uh, otter mothers teach their kids to swim by doing what all of our parents did when we learned to swim, which is just like forcibly ducking them underwater. <laughs> In order to make this. So ba baby otters are born not being able to swim. And uh, you can get watch videos of mothers training otters and they drag them from the rocks into the water and then they pull them along behind them and they let go of them like when you're riding a bike for the first time and they sort of start sinking a bit and so the mother has to go up and get them. And then to get them used to being underwater for long periods of time, they just like duck these baby otters underwater and you've hold had, them you've there. You've had some very difficult experiences growing up. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was an otter. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. Yeah, my fact this week is that your appendix can be turned into a sphincter, if you like. <laughs> no one's forcing you. I think you're going to have to explain. Um, yeah, so I, I just think this is incredibly cool, what, uh, I guess, what medicine and surgery can do. So appendixes can be really useful now. It can be repurposed for other reasons inside your body. So, for instance, if you need bladder replacement surgery, then the surgeons go in and they take a part of your intestine to make a little bladder out of it, and then they take your appendix and they reform it into tissue that builds a sphincter muscle that can contract and means that you're not going to be incontinent, which I think is incredible. You take your appendix that's sitting there relatively uselessly, controversial claim, um, <laughs> and you turn it into something really useful that stops you wetting yourself all the time. I think that's amazing. And it happens a lot in surgery. You can use appendix appendices for various things. You can turn them into other things. You can also turn them into the ureter. If you've got a problem with your ureter, you can uh, replace that by reshaping an appendix. If you are hosting a child's birthday party but you've run out of balloons... <laughs> An appendix will make a poor but acceptable substitute. Uh, weird you should say that because... It, <laughs> because um, the Aztecs used um, the bowels of animals f to make balloons. Or they blew into them. I, I mean... <laughs> and then they kind of tied them and I, they, I don't think they did shapes out of them, but they... You know, <laughs> 
Um, but that is true, actually. I think that is true. And I oh. read in one place that apparently when they ran out of kind of cats or dogs, what did they use? They used humans because they had loads of human sacrifices and loads of dead humans. And they would use the insides of humans to make balloons. I have read like, that. Happy I don't birthday, know if it's true. son. Here's your grandparents' <laughs> organs. Oh, <my> <laughs> Um, so you, Dan, have millions of sphincters, <laughs> and so does everybody else. <laughs> millions are strong. Millions. Yes, I should point out to so the sphincter I'm talking about is not the sphincter that you're imagining. Uh, go <laughs> on, because <laughs> we do have a lot of sphincters. Yeah, so we've all got an A-list sphincter, as it were, but there are millions of them throughout your body. Um, so you have um, sphincters all the way through your digestive system. A sphincter is just a ring of muscle which can expand or contract to allow anything through it. So you also have them in your blood vessels. Um, all your veins and capillaries have tiny, tiny, tiny sphincters which oh, wow. widen or, or con- constrict depending on where it needs blood in the body. Is it millions? Anyone? I thought it was like 60. Well, I looked into it a lot. And I haven't got enough. They've counted a load of ones. So they've counted the one that goes from your esophagus to the stomach or from the stomach to the small intestine. But they haven't, um, they haven't counted the ones in the blood vessels. In and obviously some of, them are, okay. some of them are so tiny. So I'm not sure that there can be a proper audit. But, wow. Um, yeah. But you've done your best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well so done. I say million. Maybe it's thousands. I don't know. So the word sphincter comes from an old word, sphingine, which means to squeeze. And another word that comes from that is sphinx, um, as in the the big kind of animal in Egypt. Um, Egypt, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. the country. Um, so the official plural of the word sphinx is sphinges. Yeah. yeah, so that's one for you all to use. <laughs> <laughs> Um, sphincters are uh, uh, blowholes, whales blowhole sphincters. Yeah, yes. any they kind of they? muscle that kind of contracts. And elephant's your, trunks. Your eyes. Your eyes. Really? In, your, the, in your pupils, the uh, muscles which can allow your uh, pupils to expand or contract, they're sphincters. Yeah. And you have two in your anus. Really? <laughs> Inside an in- and out. You have an internal one which is involuntary and an external one which is voluntary. Mm-hmm. Wow. In most cases. <laughs> <laughs> Um, wow. Also, um, koalas, koala pouches are like kangaroo pouches, but they're upside down, which feels like a design flaw. Uh, so <laughs> when they're raising their young, they're in this upside down pouch, wow. which if they didn't have the sphincter, which acts kind of like an, an elastic band or like a drawstring to keep the baby in there, the baby would just drop out of their pouch. So they clench their sphincter and then they've, the baby stays in there. So uh, the appendix, should we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. why not? Yeah. Um, so lots of theories. We didn't know about it until 1522 because in the ancient world, uh, the doctor Galen, who was just the, the doctor, and his stuff was the only really anatomical stuff we knew about until the 16th century, he only dissected monkeys, and monkeys don't have an appendix or appendices. Uh, do they not? Yeah, so that's why we didn't know it existed. Wow. Yeah, although what happened when it burst, presumably people would have got appendicitis. You, yeah, people got it. But and they I, just didn't know what it was. No, exactly. Oh, right. That's really cool. dissection was really mm. a big no-no, if you, as long as you weren't an Aztec, I suppose. There's a, <laughs> there's a thing I read today about um, when Australian explorers go to the Arctic, they have to have their appendix taken out. So uh, it turns out that that's not necessarily true. They do encourage it. But there, there is, Werner Herzog made a documentary about the people who live out there and, and the, the ones who choose to stay out when it goes into the real inaccessible months. And they have to make the decision if they're going to stay out there. The appendix needs to be taken out, as do wisdom teeth. That's, that's a thing that, that's oh, the only way that they can stay out there. There was a guy, wasn't there, who had appendicitis when he was in Antarctic. I think Leonid was, Rogozov. I was going to say he was Russian, yeah. 
Yeah. So this is 1961 and uh, it was a Russian uh, trip to the South Pole and this guy, Leonid Rogozov, got appendicitis. He happened to be a surgeon, which was useful. And he said, look, I think I'm going to have to take out my own appendix. And he wrote, what I find incredible is he's in total agony. And the night before he did the operation, he was writing his diary and he wrote, it hurts like the devil. I have to think through the only possible way out to operate on myself. Anyway, he took his appendix out and he had three assistants, one to hold the lamp, one to hold the mirror so that he could see inside himself and then a third person in case one of those two fainted (laughs) (laughs) I want to be that guy (laughs) (laughs) he said though um, he so the mirror wasn't actually that helpful it turned out so he ended up doing it by feeling around oh that's right because it was all back to front wasn't it he had the mirror there but he kept going one way but like shaving the wrong side of your face or something yeah which I think was harder than he imagined so he thought it's probably easy if I just feel and then he ended up uh, tearing a bit of his gut at one point and he had to sew that up mid-operation and what he said afterwards when he was talking when he was interviewed about it he said I felt so sorry for my surgical assistants they stood there in their surgical whites whiter than the white themselves (laughs) poor <laughs> the Daz doorstep challenge was actually uh, <laughs> founded that day. Oh, do you know what? Um, so this is sort of this fact was sort of about repurposing body parts for different things. And if you have a, a tummy tuck, um, they use the fat for breast implants. Um, so yeah. they, re- they <laughs> even if you don't ask for it on the phone, <laughs> waste not, want not. <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that the founder of Crufts designed special train carriages for celebrity dogs. <laughs> so in, uh, in the 19th century, Crufts was founded in uh, the, I think, 1891. Uh, but before there were loads of dog shows before Crufts, and um, before these train carriages were invented what they would just do, they would put the dogs that were going to the dog show in special uh, boxes, which were then strapped to the underside of the carriage. Yeah. So they would arrive, not in good nick, not really ready for for a dog show. Um, So he designed these special deluxe train carriages for dogs, and they had a row of kennels inside, and they had zinc flooring, and they had uh, water troughs, and they had drainage, and they had two seats for attendants, Mm. like cabin crew. Is um, zinc flooring the height of luxury? <laughs> the height of I dream. <laughs> I, aspire, I don't know, maybe for dogs or for... Okay. Maybe yeah. it's seen as cleaner or maybe yeah. it was then, yeah. Um, the guy from Crofts, um, Charles Croft, he was actually, was he kind of a showman or a dog biscuit manufacturer or he something? He was a dog yeah. biscuit manufacturer. In London, there was a very famous building. I think it was the first ever dog biscuit factory ever and it was called Spratt's. Okay. And that's where Charles Croft worked. He started there and he was working on the biscuits and he was so good, he had ideas about marketing and he turned turned it into the first sort of major brand of biscuits. They put logos on it and so on, so people knew about it. Yeah. Um, there's a rumour that Charles Croft never owned a dog in his life. Yeah, I've and, read it. And he sort of put it about during his life that he never owned a dog, and his wife said, yeah, because we, we couldn't show favouritism for one breed or another. And then in his posthumous memoirs, it turned out he had a St Bernard. Yeah, he had a massive St Bernard, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds very rude. <laughs> <laughs> Quite hard to hide that, the dog. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised he kept it yeah, secret so long. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so, Croft was a genius at making money, basically, and putting on these big shows and putting on even bigger shows and just like, really exploiting his audience and his market. So, I read that this was what he did in the early days of Crufts. I'm quoting here. He introduced a system where competitors would pay to enter their dogs and make additional payments if they wished to take the dogs away each night of the competition. (laughs) 
and then pay again if they wanted to take them away early on the final day. Wow. So basically, it's not free to li- enter or leave. <laughs> God, did many people run out of money and just have to leave their dog there forever? Yeah. Is there a huge lost property office of dead dogs that are <laughs> 75 years old? <laughs> I just think that's an inspired system. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It also applies here tonight, guys. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Cruft also found uh, Charles Cruft, the guy who founded it, also founded a cat show. Did you know Did that? He? Yeah. Really? But right. uh, quoting from, I think, his Oxford uh, Dictionary of National Biography entry, it failed to live up to commercial expectations. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't feel like cats would like to be shown. No. Oh, I read I read a thing about cat shows, and there was a lady who was giving advice for this. There is a cat show called the Supreme Cat Show, which is such a good name, and uh, she enters cats for it all the time. And she said the main grooming things are brushing the coat through with a comb, making sure the underarms and the bikini area are combed <laughs> through. <laughs> what? Oh my god! <laughs> and, and washing the cat's face. But... <laughs> It's pretty weird, yeah. Um, um, Do you know, so the prizes in Crufts are really small as well. Do you know the maximum prize, cash prize that you get? Uh, No. It's £100. So it's oh, really, really? A, it's a token thing. Yeah, right. You, get a, you also get a big silver cup, but you're not allowed to melt it or anything. But and a lot, a lot of, a lot of royalty have won crafts, haven't they? A lot of royalties. Not, Do they come not, in disguise? Queen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria entered as a Shih Tzu uh, <laughs> and won many years running because everyone was too afraid to say that's the Queen. <laughs> um, yeah, and so you can make money from um, endorsements and from. Um, you know, pimping the dog out for stud or whatever. I don't know what it's called, but you, they, they have sex with other dogs and then you get better dogs. Um, but <laughs> do you know what the prize was in the first modern dog show, which was in 1859 in Newcastle? Uh, no. Well, the prizes were all guns. <laughs> it, was, it was a really rural farming-based competition. It was a, there was a cattle show and they said, why don't we add a dog element to this cattle show? And so the prizes were all guns. Um, yeah. I, do you know if you get a train in the UK uh-huh. that you don't have to pay for your first two dogs to come on, but <laughs> your third right? one you do. Yeah, so you get two dogs free and then your third really? one you got to start paying. Really? Yeah, and oh. every additional dog you bring on. <laughs> yeah. But really? I read also that if any other customer objects to its presence on the train, you are obliged to move it to another area, according to bylaw 16 of the... Um... Oh, yeah, try saying that when the pit bull's got its teeth in your leg. <laughs> Uh, I object to this, according to Bylaw 16. <laughs> um, I just have a cool train, if you want to hear yeah. <laughs> I have a cool train. <laughs> what are you, six? <laughs> uh, so the, <clears throat> the Scheinen Zeppelin in 1931 was a German train, and they wanted to make a super fast train. And what they wanted to do was put a huge propeller on the back of the train. And it would go super, super fast down the tracks. It's a brilliant idea, um, but it never went past the prototype stage because they found out that the propellers would kill people who stood too close to the tracks at train stations. (laughs) Oh, my God. I've read there's a new idea of um, most complaints that come about uh, the way that trains function. One complaint is the fact that too much time is lost when they're trying to... Uh, stop when they stop at a station and people are getting on and off. The other one is about internet access. So one okay. of the plans for a new train that they've been designing is to design a train that never stops but still picks up passengers. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's incredible. So it, it just goes high speed. It's just high speeding along. And then what they do is everyone boards another train and the other train chases the train that's going to the place, docks onto it. Everyone casually walks over, docks off it. 
and goes back to the uh, to the station. That's one proposed idea for a new train. Yeah. Well, it sounds about as sensible as James's massive slicey fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for being here. Um, if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, you can find us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James at Eggshaped. Andy at Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Or you can go to our group account, which is at QI Podcast, and also go to our website. We've got no such thing as a fish.com. That's where you go, and we have all of our previous episodes up there. Thank you so much for listening at home. Thank you all for being here at Leeds. That was awesome. Thank you so much. We'll see you again next time. Goodbye! <laughs>